We're going to be in James chapter 5. We've been working through James in the evening, and I'm going to read just a very few verses. James chapter 5, 1 through 6, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Let's stand as we read God's word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your, minist- for your miseries that are coming up upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reaper have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this evening. And Lord, we ask for your help as we look into your word. Father, may we understand it and may we walk with you. May it encourage us where it can. May it correct us where it needs to. May it rebuke and instruct us in any way that we need. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be active here tonight to open our eyes and our hearts to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of the great joys of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you spend a lot of time in it. And it's amazing, as you see things in the book, I don't know of any pastor, and I haven't known any of the big names, so take this, you know, for what it's worth. This is the little guys at the bottom end of the scale. But I don't know of any pastor who's preached through a book who at the end of the book doesn't look back and go, I wish I could do that again. I miss so much. And I'm finding that same thing in James. James has such... Uh, practical advice for us. And yet there's things that I had never seen in it before that when you go verse by verse and you're studying it week after week just seem to stand out. First of all, one of the things we probably all knew about James is that James was one of the first books written of the New Testament. It was written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The gospel had not penetrated beyond the Jews. It was still you know, the people that had been there during Pentecost and during the Passovers that followed, that had taken the, the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus Christ, they had taken that home. And they were probably still meeting even within the synagogue itself. And uh, so it's just Jews. And we see this addressed to the Jews. And you don't really think of James and you don't think of James and you go, well, he was writing this because there was a problem. Anyone get that you know, view in their mind? But he definitely was. You can't come to chapter 4 and chapter 5 without seeing some of these problems. He is not re- writing to a congregation that he is comfortable with. You are in the Lord. You know the Lord. You're walking with God. I, it's a joy to my soul. That's not what he's writing. He's writing to a congregation that he doesn't know if they really know the Lord. And so he gives them 
uh, all sorts of things to look at in their lives. Chapter one, how do you respond to trials? How do we look at temptations? How are we to hear God, quick to hear, slow to speak? How are we to obey God, doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves? What true religion looks like? Each one of these, serving the widow and the orphan, each one of these was a test that you could hold up to yourself and you say, do I have the new heart from God? Are my desires lining up with what God said? And he continues that in chapter two. Are you partial? Partiality is not of the Lord. That's, it's not showing love. It's not the royal law of love where you love your neighbor as yourself. Partiality is where you're looking around and you go, well, that guy would fit really well. We like him. We're gonna try to welcome him in. And this poor man with the, with the awful clothes and maybe a little smell, we'll let him sit in the back. He can, he can stay over there on the stool. We're not gonna give him one of the good seats. You know, and this is something that occasionally does happen, even in churches. And, uh, but again, James is writing this and he's, he's showing it as a, almost as a test. Then he goes on at the end of chapter two and he says, faith without works is dead. And he gives us six verses on faith with works or faith without works. And basically, faith without works is a dead faith. It has no life in it. It's not coming from God. It's an empty belief saying, I believe, like the Jews who would say, I believe. And when Christ would put them to the test, they would depart from him. Because while they believed that he was the Messiah, they wanted him in their formula, their, their way, we want you to be the king, we want you to feed us, we want you to do all these miracles for us, and then we will follow you. And God doesn't work that way. God says, you follow, I lead. And uh, so James tells him, faith without works is dead. Chapter three was on our tongue. Can we have a tongue that, that has bitter water and sweet water coming out? Can it come out of the same spring? And the, uh, the idea is, is the spring is your heart. Whatever is from the heart comes out of the mouth. According to Matthew, that is what defiles a man. So again, he's, he's taking them and checking out their tongues. Now we come to chapter four, and we talked about this for the last couple of weeks, but this is a hard chapter. James is, is not pulling any punches. I mean, he starts off, where do the wars and fights come from among you? Do they, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Okay, he's not talking about good pleasures. He's talking about the sinful lusts of the flesh, the, the pride of life that cause us to war with one another. You know, I'm better than so-and-so. I don't know why they didn't ask me to teach that class. You know, and somebody gets their nose out of joint. Why was he asked to pray and I wasn't? Why was... and the talk starts. He continues on and he says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet. Those are not words you ever want to hear talking about a Christian. Now, I don't believe this was physical murder, but I believe this was character assassination. This was hatred. This was bitterness and envy and vile just being poured out. And again, he's He's writing this letter, I think, because these problems are prevalent. He's not addressing any certain people, but he must have heard of something that was generating this, this burden on his heart to write this letter. You don't write these words unless you know of a situation that needs to be addressed. 
Can you imagine writing these words? I mean, to the scattered Christians abroad, if it didn't fit? I mean, it is a clear warning in Scripture of where they were at. And uh, he continues on, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. You know, they, they had a false love for the world and for themselves that was spiritual adultery. Sexual, you know, j- just as what God would accuse ancient Israel of when they worshiped idols. Because when we love something in place of God, we are loving that as an idol, are we not? And we become, by extension, an idol worshiper and an adulteress, a spiritual adulteress or adulterer. So James is being very uh, blunt in all of this. Um, He talks in verses 7 through 9 about repentance. What is true repentance? If this is hitting you in the heart, then you repent, lament, and mourn, and turn to God and draw near to him. And the blessing? There's forgiveness. He will draw near to you. And then in 11 through 12, he talks about speaking evil of another brother. And in 13 uh, through 17, it's a little bit of speaking evil of God and saying, I am going to do this. I am going to do that as if we were in control of our own future. As if we don't have to trust on God. And again, we looked, just to remind you, we went back to Isaiah and we looked at Isaiah Oh, there's many verses from 40 through 66 where God says, prove me if I am not God. Am not I the one who tells you what's coming tomorrow? I declare things that have not been as if they were and they are. I create a new thing. Go to your idols, ask them, see if they can do this. This is the mark of a God. He knows the future. Our God knows the future. And so James is looking to the Christians and saying, how can you talk about the future as if you hold control over it? I mean, how many last week, you know, to take D, how many would have thought the D would not be out this week? We had that with James as well. We have that with, with accidents throughout. We have our plans, but God is still the one who directs our steps. He's the one who's in control, just as he was with Job. And we can trust in that. But we must speak to ourselves, even in how we use our words, and remind ourselves, God is the one in control. And you know, I don't know if you corrected anyone else in the church, but the whole church has been correcting me all week long. If I say tomorrow, we're going to, let's plan and go to see, Lord willing, Lord willing. So obviously you all listened, so I'm going to give you an A plus for listening. I hope you're doing it in your own speech as well as correcting me, but it's been good. It's been enjoyable. And I actually enjoy it because I know you listened. And it is good for all of us to keep our eyes on the Lord and that he's in control. I mean, we, we often claim Romans eight twenty eight, for and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And we look at that, and for all things to be able to work together, God must be in control of not just the major things, but of every detail of our lives. There can be nothing that is outside of his will and his control. And we, we see that throughout Scripture, even with Satan God, and Job. God is the one who instigates with David and the senses. God, again, is the one that instigates and gives him over where Satan comes in and tempts him. And so we have all these 
explanations where God shows us his power and his control. We come to chapter 5, which is our lesson today. And again, this is a section that out of all the lessons I've ever heard on James, I've never heard a lesson on this. I've never heard a lesson on this. Even people preaching through the book tend to skip over this one. And it's kind of self-explanatory. We look at it and we understand what it's saying. And yet I want you to, there's two parts to this. First of all, I want you to go back and I want you to understand, again, these are things that James was seeing happening in the churches. In the, the, the congregations of believers that were starting to meet. And this is why he's so concerned when he writes this letter. I mean, again, you look at these ones that are, they're controlled by their own lusts. And, you know, I can see that happening. I've had it happen occasionally in my own life where bitterness or envy or, or something slips in and you, you let it fester. You know, you feel like you have been put down by what somebody says. And maybe you were genuinely put down by what somebody says. But instead of dealing with it, you let it become bitterness. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, I remember the example I gave when we were studying this. How many of you ever spent your night in bed going over a conversation saying, I wish I could have thought of these words then. I'd have told him. And is that not bitterness? I mean, that's the start of it, is it not? Yes, we want to have the right words, and sometimes we go back over and think, I could have done so much better in that situation. But a lot of times, it is our pride talking. It is us thinking, I I could have just taken him to the cleaners. Boy, I had the perfect comeback, and if I had just told him that, I'd have flattened him. And I am guilty of that. I know I am. There's been business meetings I've sat in and afterwards I've thought about it. I thought, boy, he just didn't ever get to the point. I needed to do this and I needed to do that and we could have. And it's not what we're to be looking at. It's not loving. It's not kind. It was not profitable. It was not of good report. And in anything, it's my own selfish desires growing. So I know some of these things happen. And we come here to chapter 5 and we go, well, that's not us. Most of us have never had to hire someone. We've never run a crew. It's it's very rare for someone in America to not pay the wages that are owed. (laughs) Meanwhile, never mind, I'm not going to go there, but the U.S. Post Office is just has just told us that the, the wages that they promised us in 2021, we're going to have to wait in 2023 until we get them. So maybe it's not as uncommon as, <laughs> as I think it is. But that's the first time in my whole life that's ever happened. You know, it's not something that's normal. But I know in the third world countries, this happens. You know, sometimes it happens because people literally run out of money. Sometimes, though, it happens because they make you continue to work by keeping always half of your previous wage back. And so that if you leave the job and you quit, well, then it's your fault, and I haven't paid for the last week of your work. That's just part of life. And, you know, they'll, they'll explain it to you. Businessmen in Nairobi will explain to you that they're doing this because when people leave, they leave taking whatever they can steal with them. And so we're going to always keep 50% of your last wage back and we give it to you the next week and we keep another 50% back. 
There's always that rotating 50% of your wage on a two-week or monthly paycheck. And you're just expected to suck it up, to live with it. And here God comes in and working through James, he addresses this problem in very clear, direct fashion. And you know, we read through it, and I don't know if you recognize the blessing that is in this passage. If you read through it, you just look at it and you go, well, God's going to get those rich people, isn't he? Those awful rich people. But you know, there's something else in here that's very important, and that's this feeling. God is the one doing this. God is the one doing this. He is inspiring James as he writes, but he's also promising judgment on these men who are doing this. They will not get away with it. And you know, we don't look at this and think, well, God cares for, you know, it's not usually like we go to, I go to First Peter, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. And you know, when I, when I'm, I need encouragement in the Lord, a lot of times I go to that verse. Because I I love that it says God cares for you. But isn't this the same thing? Read it with this in mind. Come you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, you can just stop there. What is he promising? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. God will not be mocked. You claim his name, you stand in his church and you deceive the brethren and you hurt them by not paying them, and judgment is coming. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like a fire. In other words, everything that you hold dear, everything that's precious, that the world values, is going to become a source of contamination, corruption, pain, and a witness against you. You have heaped up Treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cried out. And the cries of the reaper have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. That is a powerful verse. God cares. He cares. This is written to the Jews that are scattered abroad that are, are looking at Christ, are considering Christ. And he's talking to the men who are, who are by deceit, they're holding back the wages and they're increasing their treasures through deceitful means. And he's telling them, the cries of the laborers have reached God. And he gives this beautiful picture, the Lord of Sabbath. Now, why does he use that term for him? Why doesn't he say the Lord who protects you or the Lord God Jehovah or the Lord of the armies? Why the Lord of Sabbath? I think it's because Sabbath was the rest that God was going to give men. He was to provide for them so that they would, you remember the manna? The manna would come down every day, just enough for one day. But on the day before the Sabbath, there was enough for two days. And they were to harvest enough for two days. And only on that day would it not rot. It would be preserved through the Sabbath. Why? So that they would have a day that they could rest, not for their own pleasure, but that they could come to the house of the Lord and rejoice in him. 
that they could eat with family and friends and seek the Lord's face and rejoice over what God had done. And the Sabbath was to remind them that it was God who sanctifies them. It was he who did the work of salvation, who paid for their sins. All of that was tied up there. There was to be a time of rest. And now these men are keeping the wages back. They're keeping the, you know, the food and the clothes off the reapers' backs where they can't have that rest. They're hungry. They're cold. They're, they're in need. And as they cry out to God at church, God is listening. God is listening. And he's not inactive. He's not inactive. We read this and we don't really think about it, but God is listening to those who call on his name, who need help, and God is hearing. And God cares. And the God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, is on his way. Read that first line again. Come now, you rich Weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. They're on their way. This is what James is saying. They've already been decreed. You've already defrauded. You've already gone through all these things, and you've hardened your heart. You've not repented. And now judgment is coming because God cares. Now, for you and I, we might look at this and we might go, you know, there might, there's a few of us that have hired people and have had to pay wages. And like I said, other than I have never not had my wages paid. In America, that's common. We get our wages. So this doesn't really impact us. But the, the idea is, is God is watching over those that are hurting. And when you are the product of someone else deceiving you and, and using your labor for naught and, and abusing you, the Lord of harvest, the Lord of Sabbath, the one who has ordained rest, he's watching and judgment is coming. Now, I, I looked over this today and I just have to tell you, I was so encouraged by that. We are his possession. And we don't have to worry about our own vengeance. God will do that. I mean, at the end, uh, it says, you have condemned, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. I don't know if that means that there was no power to resist or simply, you know, that he was run over and he did not resist. He, he waited on the Lord and the Lord did not deliver this man for whatever reason, allowed him to be taken home. But listen to some of these verses that just talk about how we are the Lord's. In Acts 20, 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. This is Paul talking to the, the uh, elders at Ephesus when they came to meet him, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And it says, Take heed among yourselves and to all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You know, all too often we don't realize this is his prized possession, the church. 
It's his prized possession. It cost him the blood of his son. And he has given the believers in the church as a bride to his son. Washed and cleansed them. Given them a new heart. Saved them with an eternal salvation. Redeemed them completely. Justified them. Removed the sin as far as the east is from the west. There's no spot or blemish remaining. There's still sin in our flesh that we deal with. But God himself on the judgment scales, they've been washed, they've been cleansed. And we are now looked at as the bride of Christ. And when God looks at us, he looks at us through the love that he has for his son as a prized possession. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He's given us the Holy Spirit, even the word of... uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It just hasn't, you know, the final uh, part of taking possession hasn't happened. The down payment has been given. The money actually has changed hands. God has declared the debt satisfied and, and everything else. And now we're just waiting for the Lord to return and say, okay, now I'm really going to take you home, right? That's what we're waiting for. We're his possession. 1 Peter, another one, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, Christ, the eternal God, had to take on flesh. You ever thought about that? The God who had infinite knowledge and infinite presence had to be confined in a baby in a womb for nine months, had to be tended by a mother, had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to talk, had to learn obedience to earthly parents. You ever think maybe they made some mistakes in their parenting? I mean, I know I did. They might have known Christ was never wrong, but, you know, I mean, they probably weren't perfect, even if it was just frustration after a hard day of work. And there's the Son of God, perfect. We were redeemed with the precious lamb without blemish and without spot. 33 years of testing on this earth. 40 days in the desert without friend or ally, without food or water, with Satan as a companion to tempt him as he walked along. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has called us, we are his own. And for a man to touch that people is to touch the apple of God's eye. We don't have to be the physical descendants of Abraham to be the spiritual descendants. We look around at this world and we look at the persecution of the church and the hiring of the IRS agents and we wonder, where is it coming? Is, is this more persecution coming? Is it coming upon Christians? We don't have to worry about that. 
We are God's own special people. He's got his eye on us. But we do have a responsibility for how we live. In Matthew 6, I'm just going to finish with this. He reads, uh, reading from 24 through 33, no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. This is what James is talking to them about, isn't it? Are they putting their trust in the Lord or are they serving mammon? Are they serving money? And obviously, according to James 5, they're serving money. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love their else or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubic to your statue? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do we trust God? Not just as the rich that are encouraged or commanded to pay the laborer his wages, but do we trust God when we are in the position of the poor and we are the ones being persecuted and we are the ones under trial? Are we willing to say, my God knows? My God will provide? He's promised if we seek him first, if we make him clearly master in our lives, he will provide what is needed, not as what is wanted, not always what is desired, but what is needed. Clothing, food, shelter, what we need to eat and drink. He'll provide it. This is what I see when I look at that. Now, tonight we're going to have the Lord's table. And we always, every week, I, every month when we do the Lord's table, I try to think of it, and I try to ask ourselves, what are we actually doing? Because we don't want an empty ceremony, do we? We don't want to just go through the motions. In fact, when we partake of the Lord's table, God says we do it to our own damnation if we don't do it rightly before God, our own judgment. We eat and drink judgment on ourselves. He will not hold us guiltless because this represents what? The body and the blood of his son. But it represents something else that fits with our lesson tonight as well. It represents the provision God has made for us. In paying for our sins, yes. But in also we are to eat and to drink of the body of Christ, are we not? It's to be our food and our drink. It's to be our nourishment and our fellowship. It's to, it's to provide all of our needs. This is the symbol of this covenant. 
that one day he will return and we will eat with him in the kingdom. And we will drink the wine once again with him in the kingdom with his father. This is the promise, not only of what was past as he died on the cross, but also what is coming as we will one day rule with him in heaven. So as we go to this tonight, I'm going to ask you to do two things. First of all, let's go back and look at our own lives. If there's something between us and God, we're going to give you a couple of minutes for quiet prayer. Make it right. Make it right between you and God. If there's any sin that hasn't been confessed, confess it. Get brutally honest with God before God gets brutally honest with you. And secondly, let's remember who God is and what he's done for us. We are so blessed in knowing this God who watches over us from heaven above. James can write these words with not a shadow of doubt in his mind that their judgment is coming because they have touched God's people. We are the people that had the blood of Christ shed for our sins. We are the ones that were bought as a gift for his son, a loved gift for Christ. We are the ones that God has given to Christ and Christ has said, I will keep them. They are mine and no one will pluck them out of my hand. And we can rejoice in that tonight that no matter what comes in the future, God is on our side. We're gonna give you just a minute or two for quiet prayer and then I'll close this out. Let's go to prayer. Our Father, we come before you this evening, and Lord, I just ask that if there's anyone here who has anything between them and you, Lord, that you would be merciful to them. Father, that you would open their hearts and their eyes to see it. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would be drawn closer to you, that they would see what a blessing it is to come into the kingdom and to be one of your sons and daughters. Father, for our church, We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be the light you have called us to be. Lord, to be witnesses Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. Lord, that we would stand for you in our workplace. Lord, that we would be the just. If that means laying our lives down without resistance, Lord, that that would be us. But, Father, that the testimony that would go forth from us would be one that would bring glory to you. May our words be correct before you. May our thoughts and our hearts be correct before you. May we have a spring that that only puts out love and good things. And Father, even when it must correct, may it correct with love and with grace and for the purpose of edification. Father, we ask for your help, for we know that in our flesh dwells no good thing, and without you we can do nothing. Father, we come this night and we also remember this table and we thank you for the opportunity once again to gather together and remember what you did with us on the cross and what you've promised one day will be ours in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.